Welcome back to the Expository Word Podcast, where we are listening to classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. We have some good news to share. This podcast has recently been added to iHeartRadio. Please consider sharing this with your friends and family. We are currently in a series from the book of 2 Samuel. We trust you will enjoy today's message as an encouragement to your faith. Let's listen now to Kimber. What an honor. I was sitting there thinking of how great our God is while the men were singing and how privileged I am to be able to declare forth who He is to you. There is no greater honor, there is nothing on earth that compares with being able to preach the Word of God to people. Please take your Bibles and open to 2 Samuel 17. We are in a verse-by-verse expositional study of this historical book of the Old Testament that is still alive and well and speaking to us this day. Just so we understand where we are in this chapter, because you shouldn't jump into the middle of the Bible without knowing where you are, King David, the sweet singer of Israel, the Goliath slayer, has sinned. And as a result of it, these following chapters, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, all are controlled by chapter 12, verses 10 through 12, where the prophet Nathan said, because of your sin, you're going to have trouble in your own household. You did this thing secretly, it's going to be, you're going to be exposed in front of all of Israel. And we've talked about the consequences of sin. For instance, the baby dies that was conceived in that illegitimate relationship between David and Bathsheba. Amnon, David's son, rapes Tamar, David's daughter. Absalom murders Amnon. These are, this is the number one guy in the throne, gets murdered by the number two guy for the throne. And then Absalom is banished to a foreign country to Geshir, and there he is for years, hiding. And the people are wondering, who's going to be the next king? And Joab, concerned about this, sort of plays a little trick on David to, to make him make a verdict so that Absalom could come back. But oh, how Joab had miscalculated. Because Absalom then goes on a four-year public scheme of, of saying, oh, I feel your pain. If, if only, if only I were a judge in Israel, if only I had some authority around here, how I would help you. And there's a movement now being spread where David is known to be a very grievous uh, murderer and, and, and an adulterer, and his popularity is low, and, and Absalom is beautiful with long flowing hair and handsome, and his popularity is up. And all of a sudden, when we get to the 15th chapter, Absalom has gone down to way of Hebron, which is 20 miles south of Jerusalem, and he crowns himself king, and they send out the messenger service, and all of Israel and the surrounding countries know, really in just a matter of hours, at the very most days, that Absalom has been crowned king in Israel. And so the, the last chapter, David here gets the news, and he begins to leave town with his palace guards and the soldiers that are still loyal to him. Absalom had taken 200 of the top officials down with him. Plus, David hears the news that Ahithophel has turned his back on him. And David is more concerned about that than even his own son has turned his back on him. And so we left off last chapter with David fleeing and running and in hiding and Absalom coming into Jerusalem and taking control of this place. In fact, I want you to look at verse 20 of the 16th chapter to help us understand this. Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give us your advice. What should we do? So here they are in the palace. I want you to think of the Oval Office. But here's the, the, a cabinet meeting with Absalom, the new king, and his officials. And they turn to Ahithophel, this, this, this incredibly wise counselor, Bathsheba's father, and says, who, who, what, what should we do now? And Ahithophel said, lie with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench in your father's nostrils, and the hands of everyone will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he lay with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now, friends, Ahithophel was such a wise man. He says, look, there are a lot of people thinking that Absalom doesn't have enough of what it takes to be the leader. You've got to really show that you're taking charge. You've got to make the division between your dad so severe that everyone realizes this is the final say. This is the new king. So you sleep with your father's concubines on the roof. And remember, David had left ten concubines behind. And so Absalom does that. And then I want you to notice verse 23 because it sets up this next chapter. Look at verse 23. Now in those days, the advice of Ahithophel, what he gave was like that of one who inquires of God. That was how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. You see, 
David is now on his own, and one thing the chapter really makes you see, and the writer is trying to get you to see, is because Ahithophel is not on David's side, the picture is very bleak. Probably that's the number one most bleak thing against David. But you get a sense as you study the chapter, as David was leaving, you got a sense that God was with David. And so the writer is trying to paint a picture here for you to see. You've got Absalom with the great wisdom of the world, and with the massive armies, and with the popular support, and with the 200 key leaders that he had tricked into supporting him on one side, and you've got David with an army and God. And that's the tension that sets up this next chapter. So let's begin by reading the first four verses of chapter 17. Ahithophel said to Absalom, I would choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. I would attack him while he is weary and weak. I would strike him with terror, and then all of the people with him will flee, and I would strike down only the king and bring all the people back to you. The death of the man you seek will mean the return of all. All the people will go unharmed. The plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the elders of Israel. Now, I want you to notice that in chapter 16, Absalom asked Ahithophel what he should do. But in chapter 17, Ahithophel realizes this. Now, I've, I've sided with Absalom, and here's this cabinet meeting, and all of the leaders are there, and I'm going to get my say in. Absalom, you listen to me. And Absalom, Ahithophel takes charge of this scene. He's not asked, he takes charge. Notice what it says. I would choose 12,000. I would attack him. I would do this. The way the Hebrew actually says it, it says it is this. Let me choose out 12,000. Let me set out tonight. Let me pursue that king. In other words, his comments are both terse and urgent. Not a moment is to lose. We need, to make, we need to make a lightning-like surgical attack that only takes out the king. And my friends, what a brilliant strategy. Go get him now while he's weak and weary. And I want you to remember what David had said. David had, flown for, had left Jerusalem and gone this direction, and he told the priest, I will meet you by the fords of the Jordan. So David's in hiding over here. Go get him. And what is clear to Ahithophel is this. David is so shrewd, David is such a good soldier, that if he gets out and be able, is able to establish himself someplace, we're all in big trouble. So go get him now while he's weak and weary. And, and get this, send 12,000. Why the number 12,000? How many tribes were there in Israel? 12. So send 1,000 men from each tribe. It would show a unified Israeli effort. Let's go out and let's go attack right now. Don't lose a moment. Go do it. And by the way, is if you were at a, at a church, this church has, has gotten a little quieter in recent weeks and months, but, but if, it's almost if you're in church, you could see the cabinet members in this Oval Office listening to Ahithophel. Here was this wise man speaking that all his, his counsel was like the counsel of God, and you hear the men shaking their heads. And you hear, amen, preach to Ahithophel, do it. Because if you look at verse 4, the plan seemed good. And that is why it's so surprising all of the elders in Absalom are sitting there going like this, that's it, we're going to go get him tonight, surgical attack, just take out the king, that's it, that's the plan, okay, we're going to go. And all of a sudden in verse 5, it's really strange. Because for some reason, look what happens in verse 5. But Absalom, he's the new king, said, summon also Hushai the archite, so we can hear what he has to say. What? Why would he do that? Remember just in the last chapter, Hushai had gone back in at David's orders, tried to go back in there to frustrate Ahithophel's counsel. And the first thing Absalom said to Hushai is, what kind of friend are you? You're some friend you are, leaving your David at a time like this. But we see all of a sudden, and please notice, Hushai has to be, he's not in the room. Hushai is outside of the room. He has to be asked to come into the room. So he's not even in that cabinet meeting. And something strikes Absalom, and he says, I'd like to know what Hushai has to say about this. Very interesting. We should be all, there should be sort of a nervousness about us all right now. Why would he do that? Everyone knew that the advice that Ahithophel gave, 1623, was like that of God. Why would he do this? Hmm. Verse 6, when Hushai came to Absalom, said, to him, when Hushai came in, Ahithophel has given this advice. Should we do what he says? If not, give us your opinion. Now, this really sets up a dramatic moment. Absalom's on the threshold of taking over the new kingdom. He's got this council. Everyone's in agreement. But for some reason, he goes, oh, hold on, hold on. I want to hear one more piece of advice. Bring Hushai in. Hushai comes in and he says, all right, Hushai, Absalom, or excuse me, Ahithophel has told me all of this. And he lays out Ahithophel's plan. Think of this. He lays it out to Hushai. So now Hushai knows what Ahithophel has just said. Now what he, 
first off, critique his plan, and then secondly, if you don't agree with it, give us your plan. Now, you talk about being in a pressure situation. There he is in the Oval Office with all of the cabinet members sitting around. It's a packed out place, and they're all listening. What are we going to do? But obviously, the Holy Spirit is all over this man, Hushai, to give him this advice. Because watch what happens in verse 7. Hushai replied to Absalom, The advice Ahithophel has given is not good this time. You know your father and his men. They are fighters and as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Besides, your father is an experienced fighter. He will not spend the night with the troops. Even now he is hidden in a cave or in some other place. If he should attack your troops first, whoever hears of it will say, there has been a slaughter among the troops that follow Absalom. And then even the bravest soldier, whose heart is like the heart of the lion, will melt with fear, for all Israel knows that your father is a fighter and that those with him are brave. What a brilliant... What a brilliant speech he makes on his feet, on, on the moment. I, I wish that's how preaching was. You didn't have to study. You just stand up. Okay. By the way, that's not true. Preaching is not that way, although some people think it is. All right. Now, listen. Hushai says this. He stands up, and there's a tension, there's tension in the room. Everyone's leaning forward. What's he going to say? And he says, Ahithophel's vice is not good this time. And what he actually says in the Hebrew is this. Ahithophel is wrong this one time. He basically says it like this. You know, everyone knows how good a counselor Ahithophel is, and I stand and on. Who am I to speak in Ahithophel's, Ahithophel's place? But this one time he's wrong. You see how he's setting it up the stage? He's setting up the stage. He butters up Ahithophel why he's about to disagree with him. And what does he say? How did Ahithophel talk about David? Get him while he's weak and weary and disorganized. But did you notice how Hushai talks about him? Hushai says he is a fighter, he is a fierce fighter, he is an experienced fighter, and he's a mad fighter. He's a fighter. Notice how the words are found all through there. He says, look, we know his fighting skills. And not only that, he's very experienced. Do you remember when David snuck into Saul's camp? How did they sleep in those days? Saul was in the center, and the 3,000 troops were around him. Remember that? Hushai says, do you think David's going to fall for that one? You don't think David's going to be sleeping in the center of those troops, do you? You're not going to be able to find David just by finding those troops. He'll be hiding in some cave. He knows about this. And then he says, not only that, he's a fierce, mad, tough fighter. Not only that, you've hurt his feelings. He's like a mother bear robbed of her cubs. You've got him mad. Not only is he fierce, but he's mad. Oh, you better watch out what you're doing. I'd be very careful, because what will happen is, you'll go down in there, you'll start fighting with his men, you won't find him, he'll be hiding in a cave. Some of them men will whip just a few of your men, and then there'll be a rumor going all throughout Israel, Absalom's men are on the run, and you'll never be king. You shouldn't do that. No, no, no. I think it's so interesting, by the way, how, how, how smart this Hushai was, how brilliant the wisdom of God is in this. Because Stop and think about it. What was David known for, friends? Was King David known in his youth for killing a bear? Yeah. Was he known for killing a lion? Yeah. Had those stories just stopped after he was 16 or 17? No, they were with him. He was an honored king. He, he was known for killing the Goliath. Remember, he had the hit song in Israel for 40 years. <laughs> Saul is slain his thousands. David is tens of thousands. And so he brings up the very two most well-known stories about the bear and about the lion. Isn't that interesting? And he says, you shouldn't do it. You don't want to go tonight. No, you need to stop and you need to get all of Israel. In fact, let's, let's go on, verses 11 through 13. Now, here's what you should do. So I advise you, let all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, be gathered to you with yourself leading them into battle. Then we will attack him wherever he may be found, and we will fall on him as dew settles on the ground. Neither he nor any of his men will be left alive. If he withdraws into a city... Then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we will drag it down to the valley in, in, not, until not even a piece of it can be found. Okay, here's what you should do. No, don't do what Ahithophel said. Here's what you should do. Organize all of the troops of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. Now, I want you to remember that Dan was the farthest city to the north in Israel. You can't even see it on this map. And Beersheba is the farthest city to the south. What he basically said is this. Gather all of the troops of Israel, like we would say, from the New York islands to the Gulf Stream waters. In other words, get everybody there. And when they are there, then, and by the way, it's interesting because 1 Chronicles 27 tells us that David had an army of 288,000 soldiers, get this, 24,000 of which were on duty on a monthly period. So around Israel, there were 24,000 soldiers always on coal, and then you would be on for a month and you'd go back home for 11 months. 
And so there's 288,000 soldiers. He says, get all 288,000 and go find David and attack him from all around. Then follow him. And and by the way, remember this. Ahithophel said this, I will lead. And he, he appeals to Absalom's pride. First off, he scares him to death by saying he's a fighter, he's a fierce fighter, he's a mad fierce fighter. And then secondly, he says, so wait and gather all the troops. What he's trying to do is buy David some time. Gather all those troops, and then you come and you fall on him as just like a whole beach full of sand just coming down on somebody. And if there's a city that stands against us, we'll just tear that city down. And you don't want those, those guys that have sided with him around. We wipe them all out. He's trying to buy David some time. Well, the key verse in this whole chapter after he scares David, and by the way, he scares David, and think about this, he appeals to his pride, he says, don't let Ahithophel lead the army, you lead the army, but don't do it now, do it later. Well, after you heard this speech about fierce fighting and a bear robbed of her cubs and people's hearts like lions melting, you sort of don't want to go to battle that night, do you? And then he says, wait, and gather all the troops, and then you lead, and you be the big hero here, Absalom. Can't you see yourself leading 288,000 men on the chase? Come on, you be the big hero, not Ahithophel. That's exactly what you could appeal. And as I mentioned last service, I can just see Absalom up combing his hair going, brilliant idea, brilliant idea. <laughs> now, verse 14 is crucial to this whole chapter, everybody. Focus on it. Look at verse 14. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the archite is better than that of Ahithophel. Now, stop right there. Now the writer sort of takes us like this. He's writing history, and now he takes us and he says, now I'm going to let you see this from God's side. Now look at the last part of this verse. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. Wow. All of a sudden we're let in. All of this that happened that you just saw in the courtrooms, listen, in the courtrooms of Israel, in the high office, in the cabinet, where you had to get a secret pass to get in there, Only those guys, even what goes on there, God is sovereignly controlling all of those things. Now, we're going to work through the second half of the chapter a lot faster. Pick up verses 15 and 16. Watch this. Hushai told Zadok and Abathar, the priest, Ahithophel has advised Absalom and the elders of Israel to do such and such, but I have advised them to do so and so. Now send David a message immediately and tell David, do not spend the night at the fords in the desert. Cross without fail, or the king and all the people will be swallowed up. Now, you've got to remember, Several things. What must have happened is, Hushai must have been dismissed from the meeting before the elders took the vote. And after he left the door, after he walked out of the door, the elders all take the vote and they go, Hushai is better than Ahithophel. Because Hushai doesn't know it. He thinks that they may probably are going to be following Ahithophel's advice. So he says to two of the priests, remember David had sent these priests that had been carrying the Ark of the Covenant back into the city in the 15th chapter? Remember that? All right, he sends them back in. He immediately runs and finds those priests, and he says, listen, you've got to get the message. David's over there hiding in the fords this way, right in this area. You've got to go those 20-some miles, find him, and tell him to get out of there tonight. They're going to come after him tonight. I, I know what Ahithophel told him. I know what I told him. I imagine they're going to go with Ahithophel. Get out of there. Because he doesn't know what God has done, see. And he's still trying to help David. So notice then what happens in 17. Jonathan and Ahimaaz, these are more priests, were staying in, in, in Rogel. Now you want to see where Enrogel is? And Rogel is just outside of Jerusalem, just a couple hundred yards, and it really means place of the springs. Listen now, it's where you got your water. It's where the people of Jerusalem would go get their water. Now, why is that mentioned? Because, friends, listen to this. Who would go get water in those days? The women. Now, that will help us explain this next verse. Verse 17, Jonathan and Ahimaaz were staying at Enrogel. A servant girl was to go and inform them, and they were to go and to tell King David, for they could not risk being seen entering the city. In other words, just a girl would leave Jerusalem walking down there with the, with, the, with the poles over her back and the buckets of water and maybe one on her head, and she would go walking down to Enrogel as if she were going to go get water. It would look natural. Nobody would suspect anything. She was going to go tell those guys in Enrogel, and they were going to go deliver the message. But it, somehow the plan doesn't work, because look at verse 18. But a young man saw them and told Absalom, so the two of them left quickly and went to the house of a man in Baharim. Now look at Baharim. That's right over here. This is where Shimei had just been cursing David on his way out of town. You remember? So these men run over here. And you say, why would they do that? Well, friends, listen. In those days, politics was known as it is, in the, as it is now. And these men are on the run from Enrogel. They know that there's a guy that's on David's side that lives there. There was also a guy that was cursing David to live there. So they run and they hide in his house. And when they get there, this is very much like the story of Rahab the harlot in the book of Joshua. Look what happens. Verse 20. 
Verse 19, excuse me. Verse, verse 18, excuse me. Back up one more. But a young man saw them and told them. So the two of them left quickly and went to the house of a man in Behirim. He had a well in his courtyard, and they climbed down into it. His wife took a covering and spread it out over the opening of the well and scattered grain over it. No one knew anything about it. And when Absalom's men came to the woman at the house, they asked, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman answered them, They crossed over the brook. The men searched but found no one, so they returned to Jerusalem. After the men had gone, the two climbed out of the well and went to inform King David. They said to him, Set out and cross the river at once. Ahithophel's advice such and such against you. So David and all the people with him set out and crossed the Jordan by daybreak. No one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. Now, what happens is, this is a very interesting story. We're getting filled in on even the little details now. The two guys get seen, and they get told that I think David's going to get warning of what's happening. And even though that's not what was going to happen. And so they go and they hide in this well, and this lady, there was a well. Now you realize there'd be holes in the ground where you'd get well, where you get your water. She puts a blanket down, and after those guys crawl down in the hole, and she takes a great big couple, three or four bushes of wheat or, or corn or something, and she puts it over the blanket so you couldn't see the blanket. It's just like there was a big mound of corn there. And so these guys would, could come, and they would never even conceive that there was a well there. And so the guys ask her, where are those men? Because they knew who was on whose side. And he, they, she goes, oh, they, they, they've gone on over the brook, which I think probably was a lie. And again, as I mentioned in first service, you deal with all that trouble. Okay, I'm not going to explain that right now. You deal with all that. <laughs> all right? Now, but you do see a little bit of Rahab there. Now we go back to this little town, and the next verse jumps all the way down to this little turn, this little town right here. That's where Ahithophel was from. And look at verse 23, what it says. When Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey set out for the house in his hometown, he put his house in order, and then hanged himself. So he died, and he was buried in his father's tomb. This is the second of four suicides mentioned in the Bible. See, Ahithophel realized this, that he had sided with, with Absalom, and that by delaying and letting David cross the Jordan, Ahithophel knew that Absalom had forfeited his advantage. He was sure at this point in his life, that David was going to win. He realizes that he then will be guilty of treason. And Ahithophel, this brilliant man, example again of a fantastic wisdom, the children of this world are wiser in their, own eye, in their own age than the children of light. He's an example of this. In that, he's very cold, very calm, very calculated. He just goes home, he puts his house in order, and he hangs himself. Because he realizes this thing is over. Absalom's lost for sure. Now, there's a quick brief description of what happens in verses 24 through 26. Watch this. David went to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Absalom had appointed Amasa over the army in place of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Jether, an Israelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nabash, the sister of Zeruai, the mother of Joab. The Israelites and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. I didn't hear any great amens or, wow, isn't that deep and insightful? When you go through those verses, don't you always get a little frustrated? Well, here's what they're trying to say to you. The writer is trying to get you to see something. First off, I want you to see that David has crossed over and headed to this town, Mahanim. He's coming in from the south. Absalom has gathered the armies, and they're coming from all over Israel. But they tell you they camp in Gilead to the north. So they've come up this way. Actually, this arrow should be up this little farther to the north. And so you've got Absalom and the armies of Israel here. David and his men here is the picture that's being painted. Now, the reason for all of these family names that are given, a quick family history is to show you that there's more than just one conflict going on here. This is not just Absalom versus David. This is also Amasa against Joab, who were cousins. And the relationships are given to show you that the general of David's army is also in hating, hating his cousin Amasa. And so there's all kinds of family feud going on here before this uh, civil war is about to break up. And then the chapter concludes 27 to 29. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobai, son of Nahash, and Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, son of Amiel, from Lodibar, and Barzilia, the Gileadite, from Roglim, brought bedding and bowls and articles of pottery. They also brought wheat and barley, flour and roasted grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep and cheese from the cow's milk for David and his people to eat. For they said, the people have become hungry and tired and thirsty in the desert. Now, that's what you see on, on here. What is being said now is, 
David, for as many years of being king, had many good relationships with other foreigners. Remember how kind-hearted David was to other foreigners? Several of the passages in the past. They start to come back now to, to, in a helpful way, haunt David. Because notice what happens is here, Shobi, this guy, he comes from Rabbah. He comes up with all these supplies. These are very wealthy, very influential men. Brazilii from Roglim, he comes down. And this guy from Lodibar comes down. And they're all there helping David. So supplies are coming into David. And by the way, you don't think that's a serious problem to have a, a few thousand men out into the desert? With, you need food, you need water, you need supplies. And all of this was brought to him. Which, by the way, at this moment in time, David writes the 41st Psalm. And listen to how the 41st Psalm begins, my friends. He says, blessed are those who have regard for the weak. You know who he's talking about? He's talking about Shobi, Brazilia, and Makir. He's talking, as he writes Psalm 41, you'll start to understand it. If you read Psalm 41, Psalm 55, Psalm 3, Psalm 4, and others at this time, you'll begin to understand it. So there we are. We have worked through now that chapter. Now I'd like to ask you this question. What does that have to do with you? How is that supposed to help your Christian life? Is it supposed to help your Christian life? Well, we haven't done this for two weeks, so we're back now. We can't go longer than that. In which we see these verses again. All right? Paul says to us, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, you might have hope. Now, all Scriptures God breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training so that you can be thoroughly equipped. But please get this. It was written to teach us so that you could have endurance. Does anybody here need endurance in their Christian life? Does anyone here need encouragement? Does anyone need some hope? Well, my friends, this passage is so powerful, there is so much for us to say. And I want to begin by, by just explaining this. We are going to focus this day mainly on what we're going to learn about God. And ask ourselves, from this chapter of Scripture, it says you've come to church to worship God, and you sang songs back to God, and we've listened to songs about how great our God is. Let's stop a moment and think about this. What do we learn about God? And by the way, a theocentric view of Scripture, what do we not get for ourselves, but what do we learn about God is always the best way to start in any chapter of the Bible that you study. What does it say about God? What have I learned? Well, the thing I want you to see is this. He is completely sovereign. That's the whole pinnacle of this chapter. And one of the pinnacles of this whole book. And look again at 714, what it says. Absalom and all the men of Israel said the advice of Hushai the Archite is better than that of Ahithophel. Now watch, this should just scream at us. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. Suddenly in the muddled affairs of all of this problems, and even in the disciplining hand of God upon David, you all of a sudden get this point that he is completely sovereign. Now my friends, tell me if this is not appropriate in a world that we can go out right now today as you go out for dinner, you very possibly you're going to pass a car that has a bumper sticker on it that says this. Blank happens. Right? You see, God is not the creator anymore. No, uh, no way. I mean, we, you know, we've all just evolved here. We've been here for billions of years. We, we came up out of the sea. There's no purpose to our creation. But not only that, far, even far more removed is there is no chance that there is any sovereign providence hand guiding this world. I mean, everything is left to chance or fate. I've had unregenerate people say to me with their veins bulging in their neck, if there is a God that made my mom suffer the way she suffered, he's got some answering to do to me, buddy. I've had people say that to me on more than one occasion. There's popular deism in evangelical circles. Most people are deists. Deist comes from the 17th century. And that is God created, yes, oh, God created, but then... He's so interested in so many things that he created us as if we were just one portrait, but there are many other portraits, and, and he may only look in on us every so many years. And possibly at the big adventures of your life, God is there, but otherwise he's not really there. Or listen to this statement of blasphemy. Chance is a pseudonym God uses when he would rather not sign his name. Think of that. But you know what we know? The Bible says this, my friends, listen, and let your hearts rejoice. God is all-powerful. God is in control every moment. Now watch this. If this is not true, then we are hopeless victims of deterministic chance with no God to whom we can trust in at all times, and the Bible says you can trust in God at all times. Many verses like that. 
In fact, we would say it this way. History is his story. You've heard that phrase before, I'm sure. But he is, history is his story. As I believe Philip says in 1 Timothy 6.17, God is the blessed controller of all things. Now watch this. Troubles and devastation, deep sorrow come our way. But they are only battles that seem to be lost. He is alive and in control and still at work to win in the end. My friends, probably an illustration that you've all heard so many times about this, which you need to hear it once again, is the illustration of the tapestry. Now, a tapestry, you look, if, if we had it hanging on this wall, and if you could look at it, we could all sit, walk in and see some beautiful tapestry and go, oh, that, that is magnificent, the way everything has been woven together to give us a beautiful picture or to send such a clear message. Look at that, that's fantastic. But you've all heard the story of what happens if you walk behind it. What happens when you walk behind it? It's all muddled and confused, and there's all kinds of threads and everything out of shape. And we sit back and we go, oh, and you look at it from this side and you go, how could there possibly be anything to this? It's just a muddled mess. I mean, people died. Someone told me right after the first service message, their cousin was shot at a, just this weekend. A 26-year-old man was he's getting money out of his ATM machine on the east side of Indianapolis. There's, there's all of these things happen. I mean, we hear about car wrecks and diseases, and some, all of a sudden you get some terrible news, some, something's happened to somebody, and Christians look back, and the world looks back. The world, by the way, who is no friend of God, looks back hating God and says this, hey, don't tell me there's some God that signs his name to this mess. But you know what this chapter does? The point of this chapter is for you to say, hey, when you're on David's side of this thing, look at the muddled mess. Remember, God is still at work making this picture eventual. That is why battles may seem to be lost, but God's sovereignly, powerfully, almightily working to bring about his purpose. Now, friends, let me just show you, and this is so, that is so, it's so appropriate to have that song sung that the men sang for us just before. I want you to see something that is absolutely marvelous to behold. Watch this. Here is the book of Acts. This is the third sermon ever preached in the New Testament church. Peter is preaching it, and watch this. After, after it says, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Now watch this. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Now they quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain and the kings of the earth take their stand against the rulers, against his anointed, against the Lord and against his anointed one? Now watch this. They use Psalm 2, which David wrote. Say, Sovereign Lord, we praise you. You're the blessed controller of all things. And in Psalm 2, David says, Why do the heathen rage? Why do the kings of the earth gather themselves to take counsel and say, Let's stop God's purpose? Because watch this. Against the Lord and against his anointed one. Against the Lord, against Jehovah, against his anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now watch how, watch how Peter applies this psalm to his day. Watch, watch. Indeed, Herod, ruler in that day, and Pontius Pilate, another ruler in that day, met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus. Here's another meeting that took place in Jerusalem. Just like the meeting with Ahithophel and Absalom and the cabinet members, here's another meeting that took place, but please get this, everybody, watch. They met to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. You get that? The muddled mess of a crucified, bloody Savior. Totally, if you've if you ever got the Sunday school class taste that turning our church taught on the trial of Jesus, in which it is just so heinous in how they cheated Jesus, how unfair they were. You want to just see a, a group of men that just had a set prejudice purpose to get rid of a guy. And here's what we're told. We're told that, that Peter applies this message in that day to the leaders of his day and says, just as God was sovereign in the, in the, in the a round room there in Absalom's empire, so he's still sovereign in this day, and it was what God planned to happen. In other words, it looks like you lose the battle, but did the cross lose the battle, or did the cross win the war? It won the war. So we got to take a step back and say, hey, wait a minute. When we first see disaster or tragedy or trouble, we better stop and take a second and say, wait a minute, which side of this tapestry are we looking on? My uncle tells the story. My uncle's been a missionary, and three times, everything he owned was destroyed by the communist. He tells the story of walking back heartbroken as they heard the communists were coming, and they had to run, and they ran, and they came back about three or four weeks later 
to their home that they had loved, and they had, just like we would love our homes, they loved their home, they'd lived there for years. And they, he, there was nothing but a burned pile of rubbish. The communists had come through and burned everything down. And he looked at where his desk was, and he looked, and there was just one little, this is a true story, it's hard to believe, but it's true, there's one little piece of the Bible that hadn't been burned. He opened it up, and it was all charred in this one page, and the page that he opened to, the only thing he could read is, Ashes to Beauty. And there is a sovereign God who rules over this world. Let me show you something, friends. Look what the Bible says. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Watch this. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? Who do we think? Our, our puny, stop and think of what we said last week. We talked about last week about the greatness of the stars in heaven, about the medical school professor who goes to this church that's studied the kidney for years and says, I can't even begin to explain the greatness of the kidney. We take one little sliver, one little part of science, and God can totally baffle the most brilliant minds on this earth. And then we have the gall to sit back and to say, why are you doing this to me? As if God Almighty is not in control of what's happening. He knows exactly what we need and when we need it. That is why, look again, the psalmist says this, why do the, this is what we already read, why do they conspire? Why do the kings of earth take their stand against the Lord and say, let us break their chains? Look at this, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. We sit back and we hear about F-16s and the ability of nuclear bombs, and we hear about how many thousands of bombs this country has versus that country, and how many missiles attacks they could give, and how many planes and Navy ships, and we talk about, I love to do that too, by the way, hear about horsepower and F-18s and how fast they can go and how much, how much power they can deliver, and we sit back and we go, wow, and if you ever go to an air show and you see those planes, there's sort of a sense of awe comes over you, you're there, oh. Well, I'll tell you what, you take all of the armies and all of the bombs and all of the people on earth, all defying God with all one heart, God would just sit up there and just laugh. Little joke, little jokey people. All you got is those nuclear bombs. You got to be kidding me. God rules. Look here, friends. The king's heart, look at this what Proverbs says. You know who wrote this? Solomon. I wonder if Solomon's thinking about this event. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Do you know what? This really was a shock to me. I've, I've quoted this verse for years. The King James says, the, the king's heart is the hand of the Lord and has rivers of water. He turneth the woods wherever he willeth. I've quoted that verse, memorized it years ago. You know, when studying it, it means something different than I thought. You know what it means? It means this. The, who, who's, the, who's the most awe-inspiring person? Who holds the most authority on earth? A king. His heart is just simply in the hand of the Lord. His innermost person, his thinking, his ability to think, is right there in God's hand. And as a water course, what this really saying is, an irrigation canal that the farmers in those days would make, and they weren't some dumb people that didn't know what they were doing. They could flood a field or not flood a field in Israel if they wanted. They could control the waters by opening boxes and letting different things go that they had done. And if they said, this field needs some water for the crops, they could send water to that field. And as a farmer completely controls how much water each field gets, so the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he can just turn that king's heart and make him decide and do anything he wants at any time he wants. Scripture also says, in his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Listen to this. To a man belongs the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the answer from his tongue. My friends, look at verse 14 again of chapter 17. I want you to see something. Look at this. The last part of that verse. The Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel. Who gave better advice, Ahithophel or Hushai? Ahithophel. If Absalom would have followed Ahithophel's advice, he would have been king. Why didn't he do it? Well, we're supposed to think like this. You're supposed to look at verse 23 of chapter 16 and see this. Ahithophel's advice was like one who inquires of God. And then you're supposed to read verse 4 of chapter 7. Go there and look what it says. This plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the elders of Israel. Everyone's in agreement. If Ahithophel speaks, people listen. He has spoken. We shall, we shall go tonight. But all of a sudden, we wonder, why did Hushai ask that question in verse 5? Suddenly, excuse me, Absalom, why did he ask that question in verse 5? Absalom said, someone also Hushai. Why? 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 Here's why. Verse 14. Look at it. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster upon Absalom. 
you realize this? It's not that Ahithophel's advice was bad. It was good. The point is God made Absalom stupid. That's the point. That's the very point being made here. God in his sovereignty can make a king to make a stupid decision. Listen, friends. With all of his selfish ambition, they're talking about Absalom, with all of his self-promotion, his good looks, his strategy, he still was on the leash of divine sovereignty. Yahweh is in control of the kingdom even of wicked men. And God, what the message is here, if you've been studying with us this whole book, you would hear it loud and clear. God is still protecting David as he did in Saul's day. Oh, those of you that have blown it in your life, you've had some terrible, horrible failure, and you sit there and you think, oh, now I can never be used to God. No, no, here's the message. After you've been restored and refreshed and forgiven, you will experience the disciplining hand of God. But my friends, that does not mean he gives up on you. He's still protecting. He's still loving. It's almost like God is saying to Absalom this, Absalom, I will use you to discipline my anointed one David, but now you're going too far. How many times does God say that through the, through the prophets? You know what God says in the, in the prophets? He says things like this. Now these nations... Egypt and Assyria, do you know what they thought they were doing? They thought they were coming down here just to get, get, get. But they were sent by me to punish Israel. But now they've gone too far, and now they're going to get it. This is the God of the Bible speaking, who is sovereignly in control. That is why, friends, and as I mentioned in the last service, I will get a, probably a couple of nasty letters here, but you need to hear it whether or not you like it or not. You need to hear this next point. Christians are not thinking clearly about the sovereignty of God. And as a result, I hear all kinds of foolish things being said, but you need to know this. God is not a Republican, and America is not Israel. Now, you need to know that because I've heard people saying things like this. Well, Bill Clinton was elected against God's plan. As Who do you think Bill Clinton is? And worse yet, who do you think God is? If God cannot accomplish through Bill Clinton what he wishes... What kind of God do you serve? Now, I can just hear, I can just start, just, I can hear you starting to pen your letters, but don't. Because listen to this first. <laughs> listen. Please listen now. I am not saying this. I am not saying that you shouldn't pray. Did not David pray going up the mountain? God frustrate the advice of Ahithophel. Didn't he say that? And did he then not send the priest back into the town with this direct command, if you can do it, frustrate the advice of Ahithophel? So should we not pray and should we not do all that we can to be salt and light to our generation? Yes. But then do we sit back and criticize the president? No. And at this church, we're going to pray for our president and we're going to encourage him because that's what you do towards authorities, the Bible says. You don't sit around and just bless. Now, is there things he stands for that we disagree with? Yes. But we are to do this with meekness and with fear, with reverence towards God. As we see, remember maniacal Saul, David would not take out maniacal Saul when he could. We have to respect the authority that God has given but now, this brings us to one more question that we need to ask ourselves. Now, listen to this. This is so encouraging. I love it because we can sit around all day and talk about kings, and I can mention, you know, things. Oh, I didn't mention one thing to you, by the way. Listen to this. Is this still going on? When you say, well, 4,000 years ago, in some courtroom in Israel it happened, and then 2,000 years later in Jerusalem it happened. But did it happen since then? Well, I'll tell you, in 1941, Hitler's... Counselors were unanimous in agreement. We go to attack Russia now. Go now. And Hitler, against all of his good counsel, got enraged with Yugoslavia because of their resistance and said, I'm going to wipe out Yugoslavia first and then I'm going to go get Russia. And he delayed four to five weeks and a lot of good guys that know history tell you that may be the big difference in the war. Could God possibly be reigning and ruling over a maniacal, crazy Hitler? Oh, yes. He's still controlling. Now, you, now if you're going to ask me this question, because if you preach this kind of sermon, you get more questions than you do answers sometimes. But you're going to start asking, well, what are you saying, Kim, about all those millions that were killed in the ovens? I was there. I saw it. I was at Buchenwald. I cried all through Buchenwald for a half hour. I just wept. And I'll tell you, the scenes and the stories are horrible, but I'm just going to tell you, we still do this. Our Savior died on the cross, and it was to bring about beauty. And I will tell you that we're looking at this side, and when you hear about six million people getting killed, we're not quite sure all that it means. But it doesn't mean this, that God is not sovereignly controlling history. But this leads us to this question then. 
Is this just for kings and rulers, but for all who love him? Remember Romans 8, 28? All things work together for good for those who love him. And I've also added, and for all those referring to provenient grace, or the, those that will become Christians, for all who will love him, God in his sovereignty works in the behalf of his children. Friends, this is so important for us to get. You say, how do you know that, Kim? Are you sure? I mean, I can see it applying to David. I mean, he's a big Bible character. And I understand it in Hitler. He's a big guy in world history. But little old me, sitting at the kitchen table? Could it, could it apply to me? Well, look what Jesus says. Look it. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Yes, amen. That's right. We need to hear that. Thank you. It's true. We have a sovereign God that we can sit back and say, oh, you are so great. You are so wonderful. You are so awesome. He's sovereign over a life. He was sovereign in David's day. He was sovereign in the first century. I mentioned Hitler. Let me tell you about a little boy in junior high. When I was in seventh grade, it was a very, very difficult time in my life. My parents were split up. I was, you know, when you're in seventh grade, you're fighting for who in the world you are and what life is about. And they got ready to start a new football team in the area. And if you could make that football team, you got to have the exact version jerseys of the Atlanta Falcons. The team was called the Northeastwood Falcons. The helmets were painted exactly, and they showed us to them. 125 guys tried out for 33 places. And I remember going there, and I missed the first week of practice because I was in Florida on vacation, and that was not a good way to try to make the football team. And so I came back, and there was a 100-pound rule. You had to be under 100 pounds. They weighed me in at 98 pounds so I could still be a ball carrier over those days. Okay. <laughs> but, but listen, listen to what happened. You went there to practice the first day. They have all these drills, pounding, pounding, pounding. And they have all these different groups and assistant coaches watching over the groups. You're running through all these different drills, and they're trying to see who are the 33 guys that are going to make this traveling squad. And we're going to play in Kentucky and Illinois and Ohio and Indiana. Get to travel on this big Greyhound bus. And every day on Monday, my first day there, the guy would come over and he would go, all right, Smith, Jones, and those guys would have to leave and go to the field way over there where it wasn't mowed as nice. And they had to play on the A and B teams. And all they did was play each other every week, and they had old, ugly jerseys. And man, I'll tell you, my heart, the next, I would, the, next, the next hit, I would hit the guy all the harder. Well, the third day of practice, and they were going to have all the final cuts by the end of those two weeks, and the third day, which meant the eighth day, which means there was only two days left. The assistant coach was watching, and I'd happened to watch on these little five-yard tackling drills, I happened to watch how the one guy faked one way and went the other, and I thought, he's going to do that again. And so in this five-yard tackling drill, I, I, I waited, and he faked just like I thought. He went right where I thought he was, and I absolutely nailed him and just stood him up straight and put him out on his back, just like you love it, as what you can do at 98 pounds. <laughs> he was probably all of 85 pounds. But you know what? The assistant coach saw that, and I just smashed him. And he said, good job, good job. What's your name? The name on the back of your helmet. It went like that so he could see. Kaufman, good job. Just a few seconds after that, the head coach came. And this guy was a commanding type guy. And he goes, all right, stop it. You had to stop it. Now, here's this group of 20, which there's going to be some names called, and you're going to be sent down to the, you know, Hades, really. <laughs> and listen to this. Listen. He says, Jones. Miller, cough. And right as he said cough, the guy in the right next to him blew the whistle so loud that he had to stop what he was saying. And he never got man out. Cough, man. He never got that out. He just said, cough. And I'll never forget because I thought, oh, my heart just sunk. Oh, oh, I'm going to be over there with those guys in these ugly blue uniforms. I, I don't want to be over there. <laughs> and listen, as soon as, before he could get Kaufman out, and after that whistle was blown, the assistant got him over and said, come here. They went over and they started talking. And I knew they were talking about me. And the assistant, was, and what he was telling him was about the hit I just put on that guy and give him another day. And so the co both the coaches, the head coach is looking back and looking at me, and I'm standing there. <laughs> now, you know what? I'll tell you something, friends. You may think that's just all Kim. That's just nothing. I'm going to tell you, I, I made the team, I was quarterback of that team, but here's, that, that's not the point. The point is this. Do you know something? God knew for a little seventh grade boy what he needed. I did not even know the Lord at that time, but I know that God was watching out over me and protecting me. 
You know, there's a family in our church. I love to hear stories about how people have come to this church. It's amazing to me. It's just amazing. Let me just tell you one. There was a family in the church for several years. They were looking for a church that's taught the Bible expositorily, verse by verse. And they were so frustrated. And there was even marriage problems. They were so frustrated. They so badly wanted to find it. And they had prayed and they'd just given up and they didn't know what to do. And I'm not saying we're the only show in town. I'm just telling you from their perspective, this is their story. And you know what they said? They went to Clues Hall one night, and during one of the breaks, they were out getting whatever you had to get out during the break at Clues Hall. And while they were sitting there in this talking, there was a guy that doesn't even go to this church, he just visits now, and then he goes to another church, and he says, he was talking to somebody else, he says, if you want to get the Bible taught to you expositorily, you've got to go to College Park. And the one lady heard it, she goes, did you hear that, honey? He said, no, what did he say? He says, if you want to get the Bible taught expositorily, go to College Park, find out where College Park is. So they go over, excuse me, sir, what did you just say, and where's College Park? And they told him they came that Sunday, and they've never been gone since. And that was two or three. And they, and they sit there. I've gotten letters and encouragement from it. And the, the Lord has used this church. Now, let me ask you, is he sovereign in David's day? Was he sovereign in Israel? Was he sovereign over Hitler? Was he sovereign for a little seventh grade boy? Is he sovereign over the lives of the people that come to this church and, and other churches in Indianapolis? Yes, he is. We've got a God that we can stop back, look at, and say, you are almighty we often, in the eye of faith, look at the backside of the tapestry and say, where are you? And that's okay. God will allow you to question him. You just got to eventually come down on his side. And so, that's, I, have, I have more to say to you, but to just show you that tonight we're going to talk about a God who's infinite in wisdom, a God who is perfect in love. Because you see, if he's all sovereign, but he's also not all wise, or if he's not all loving, then this makes no sense. And also, I want you to see things about how we can apply it to our own lives. You need to learn about faith, that God hears your prayers and other things. And, and, and one more. Watch this. Watch carefully here. God is working for you even when you can't see it, okay? So we'll finish up learning about God, and then we'll come back and learn about what this means about our own faith. But you know what? There is not a better way to close this service than to say this. Let's stand together while these men come up and sing one more time that song they sang for us just as we started. And let's listen to it carefully with them. And I know one guy's got a bad voice, but you, the rest of you, do the best you can, all right? I know one guy's voice about gone, okay? Let's stand together. That concludes today's message from the Expository Word. Please join us again for more classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Take care.